Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. Now, this week on the podcast, we have a special treat for you. So much so, we in fact turned this episode into a two-part series with none other than Mark Ferrier, who built the marketing agency Traffic Group to more than $2 million of EBITDA before it was acquired by the private equity group Onyx in an eight-figure exit. In this first of a two-part interview, Mark shares the story of how he got started in the marketing agency world and how a rift with his former partners left him on the wrong end of a $2 million lawsuit. Here to share with you the full story is Mark Ferrier. Enjoy. Mark Ferrier, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Uh, thanks. It's, uh, it's been a journey. You and I have known each other for a while, so it's uh, actually fun to get to spend some time together on it. We have, and I was trying to remember how we got connected, and for the life of me, I can't. So maybe at some point over a beer, we'll remember. But we I can give you the quick version. You want the quick version? Yeah, please do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So at the time, you had your newsletter, which is like the B2B gospel of all gospels. And Microsoft was one of our biggest clients at the time when I was running an agency. And Microsoft's B2B team kept sending me this newsletter. And then I reached out to you because Microsoft asked me to in sort of like this, hey, can you go see if we can do a partnership deal with them? And then you and I actually met in Belzac's in Liberty Village. And about 15 minutes into the conversation, it totally turned to you being an entrepreneur and giving me perspective on my business and a service business <laughs> and what the right time to sell and scale. And, and so that's how we met. And that must have been like 2007 for the first oh time. Oh my gosh. That was that was years ago. Wow. Oh, fantastic. I'm glad we got a chance to connect. And as we talked about before I hit record, you're kind of a three for one deal here because you we're going to talk about three different businesses um, and, and two of which you started and exited. So we'll talk about the built to sell story. And then now you're in the business of, of buying companies. And I want to get into, into that and how you think about that. But first I want to get into the story of launch. So walk me through, what was this business? How did it get started? How did you end up owning a piece of it? Yeah, it's a great story. It, you know, it's one of those where you always have a desire to be an entrepreneur, but then there's barriers to entrepreneurship, right? One is you need the right idea. One is capital. One is structure. One is resources. And so I worked for some guys in a, in a marketing business right at a university almost. And, and the, the sort of key person was a bit of a mentor of mine. And when I worked for that business, I worked for, for five or six years. And it was around 2000, probably 99. And the reason I know it was 99 was because I actually jumped to go work on the internet for um, Oxford Properties and John Love, who launched an internet-driven business. And I was super excited to go do it. And the reason I know is because that only lasted about a year and then all the capital dried up in about 2000. And at that time, I was going to go launch a marketing company with this crazy idea of how do you drive offline consumers online and online offline and online consumers into the offline environment and sort of do this. I, I guess today you'd call it an integrated marketing company, but I thought it was this creative idea that I had both, but I had no money and I had no customers. And honestly, these guys offered me a great offer. They said, Hey, come back and work with people, you know, and they respect you and like you. Um, you don't have the capital to go build your business right now. And so they had a premiums and incentives business, like, like literally it was, it was called Sunstar Marketing. And they had a guy running, he was an amazing guy named Corey. And Corey um, had a vision to run it and he was amazing at it. And they said, hey, look, we think this business can be more than just a premiums and incentives business. And they owned at the time 
a marketing company that did sampling for like the Pepsi Taste Patrol and, you know, Microsoft with one of their clients, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, it seems kind of boring to me. And I wanted to build this integrated idea. And they said, well, how about this? You take the business. We will give you 10% of the business um, as sweat equity. And you have to run it for one year as it is. And after one year, when you close it off, if you make a profit, we'll let you transform the business. And, you know, as a 25 or 26-year-old person who came from no money and suddenly got to be an entrepreneur and I got to call myself the president, it seemed like a hell of an opportunity. And, and on top of that, the guys were super great to me. They said, hey, look, you need a break. So they let me go away to Australia for almost two months before I went back and did this. And then I came back and I did exactly what they asked me to, which was I got into the business. We ran it for a year. Who, Mark, um, just let me pause. I just want to get clarity. When you say the guys, these are, are the founders and managers of the business? Like who yeah, are people letting it, you in? It, it's a great clarification and super imperative to how the narrative goes. Um, so they were three co-partners in, for lack of a better term, a sister company that had started this company. And, and it was more of an offshoot of their core business. You know, to put it in perspective, and I don't, these are round numbers. But at the time, the business that I took over was probably like a million dollars in revenue, just under, I think, not making any money. And the, their sort of mothership business, which was more of an integrated marketing business, was probably 30 or $40 million in revenue. So this was a business that they started to add additional services to their current clients and hadn't really got to scale. I used to work in the integrated business, running a, an experiential division with them. And then left, obviously, came back when they convinced me to sort of join them as a partner. Okay. And just for clarity, the, the, bus the business unit that was around a million dollars was in the business of premiums and incentives. Yeah. That kind of, so, so things like the Pepsi challenge and giveaways, yeah. you know, uh, juice things at supermarkets and that's kind of stuff. Hat, t-shirts, golf balls. That's the way I describe it. Hats, t-shirts, golf balls. Got um, it. That was that business when I originally became a partner in it. Okay. And, and when you say they gave you 10% of the business in sweat equity, are, are they, did they give 10% of the, the entire business or just the, no, the, just the million small, dollar company? That's a small business. This is a small business. Got it. Okay. Very important part to the longer part of the theory, which was I owned a small piece of the smallest entity that was, uh, that was treated as an independent organization attached to, for lack of a better term, the mothership. Was it legally... An independent part, like was it? Yeah, no, no, it's it's was. It was. It was. It, it was because they had they had different shareholders. In other words, they had two additional shareholders in the smaller company, which was at the time was called Sunstar Marketing. Um, we we evolved that name to launch over time, which is part of the story. But yeah, so the three core owners of the master company owned it, and two people that had a sort of a actually three people. This is where it gets interesting. Had a sweat equity deal. Um, their CFO of the mother company did. And then the current founder or person running it, and then they brought me in as well. Okay. That's helpful. Where does it go from there? Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting, right? So frame the context up. One, I was 26 years old. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I was full of piss and vinegar, but didn't really have the other toolboxes. And they provided them in a platform. And so we built that business and it was a really good business that we figured out how to way to be distinct and unique and all the things that we'd say, to, you know, when you're trying to figure out your, your product. And the business was growing. I think we took it from probably like a, a million dollars in revenue to probably $2 million in revenue, fully integrating with some of their bigger clients. And the business was great. And then, you know, problem number one, and I would say the, the minority partner dilemma. And, and when I say that, I say it with a totally lateral view of I had the dilemma and my partners had a dilemma, right? So, it, and this is sort of the interesting part about how I would view it. 
And so the first part about it is I suddenly realized, oh my God, I'm doing all the hard work. I'm growing this business and I own 10% of it. And then the other partners, I, you know, got into this, well, what's their value? What's my value? How does it work? I'm managing the employees. And so that was sort of part one of, I think, the gap, right? That I, I call, let's call it the minor equity gap. And I don't think the communications were strong and I don't think expectations were good. Um, I don't think there was a lot of alignment around how this ended up in three to five years. You know, and, and that would be one of my probably biggest failures is that I don't think I did a good enough job of getting alignment of what success looks like. And then when it is successful, how does that work out for both parties on the minority and majority partners? So, you know, call this crack number one. And then, you know, so I, I went and did what most people would do. I went and vented and probably got some advice from people. And, and their answers always came back the same, which is just go get more equity. And I was like, okay, well, I didn't know how to do that at the time. But they said, if that's really what you think the end goal is, is to get more value and you think the value is through equity, you got to go get equity. And so, you know, this is probably my first error in a bunch of errors, which is I looked at the cap table and I said, OK, well, I can't really go and try and get equity from the majority founders. And there were two minor partners. One was in the trenches with me day to day. And the other one was, for lack of a better term, a fractional CMO, CFO, sorry, CFO. Um, and so I went to, he owned 10%, I owned 10%. I went to him and said, Hey, I want to buy you out. And it seemed very reasonable as an ambitious 26 year old of, Hey, you want to acquire more? This is the way to do it. Um, and, and so, and honestly, I went to go treat him fairly. And it wasn't that we had a way to undervalue him or undercut him. I just said, Hey, I want to own more. Here are the reasons why. Unfortunately, you're the person that I think is the le least amount of disruption in the model to go to. Um, him and I were friends, had a big falling out, probably five years later, we're friends again is a good example, but in the story, but you know, and, and I think there's two things that I realized in it at this point. One, I underestimated the balance of active involvement and intellectual involvement in a business at this point with minor partners, right? People put minor partners in place for reasons for the most part, I would say. Right. And he provided a good one, which he was the financial controls. He was the financial mechanisms. He kept a young, highly ambitious person on the rails, right? He, he kept everything in place. And so the other partners were not happy about it because they had two problems. One, they suddenly had the person not wanting to work with that person, him and I. And they had a problem in their core business, which this person was the CFO of their bigger business. And so interestingly, I was very naive in the sense of not understanding the ripple effect of all of those. Um, but I was hell bent on, I was being treated unfairly and I should get more equity. And so this was the way to do it. And what I thought was an equitable way in the sense of I would purchase it. Like I would go buy it and, and I would go own more. I'm not begging for more equity. And so that was, was his reaction. Uh, well, his reaction was super emotional because, you know, from his standpoint, they didn't have ownership for him in the big business. And he was an entrepreneur like me in this smaller entity. And so I didn't factor any of that in. Like it was super naive of me, right? The reason that I wanted more equity was because I was fueled and it was emotional and I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I didn't factor any of that into the conversation on the other side of the table. And so it got fractured fast. It got awkward fast. It stalled the business for a little bit, which was, as you can imagine, hyper distracted to focus on these minor equity partners um, and the relationships affecting the mothership. I call it the mothership all the time. And so... You know, we stalled for a long period of time. Um, and then 
you know, I think the, the, the second big learning came in, which is in most of these relationships, there becomes a divide, right? You know, people sort of, which team are they on at a certain point, right? And, and so the team, the, the team positioning sort of started and, you know, two of the partners sort of sided with me and said, well, we don't like it, but he did it in a way that was respectful. And yes, there's a mechanism in the shareholders agreement to do that. What? Um, what was the mechanism in the shareholders agreement? Uh, there was an, there was an EV, like there was a, a purchasability that there was an enterprise value that was pegged on the business. I think it was like a three times multiple last two years EBIT. Uh, it was, it, it. Yeah, it, it may have been four, but it, it was a super reasonable fair market value that you didn't have to go to a third party to get it valued. Um, and so that was good. So we knew the value of it. It was pretty black and white. Um, but then what happened was, you know, and, and this is where I wasn't super, I, I could have handled it differently in, in learnings being a bit more mature was they wanted to overpay him on the enterprise value um, because they said, hey, look, this was unexpected. Yes, there's a mechanism for that. But like in all pieces, there's the black and white piece. And then there's the community and relationship piece to every agreement. And they wanted to overvalue sort of the community relationship part of the agreement. And, and I was really pissed off with it. I, like, to be honest, I was like, hold on a minute. Then, then increase the value of all of our share. Like if you want to change the deal, once again, naively so. Um, I was wrong. They did a super good job of treating the person fairly in a really uncomfortable situation. Um, and then what happened was he honestly was probably the most courteous person once the deal was done, still was a CFO, still was a big champion for the company. And the business grew. So I think in some ways, the business itself needed to be either decoupled from that situation or I, as sort of the driver of the business, had to get to the motivational or equivalent to, I thought this was the value creation model for me to push forward. And the business turned out, I think we grew the business to around, it was probably around $5 million. That premium incentives piece of the business was a still smaller part of the business. We built it a bit of a environmental design business. We divine like environments. We design environments for like Pepsi and Xbox doing big music festivals. And it was a super cool, awesome business. It, it really, really was. But the learning was the fracturing that I did in the partnership never went away. It, it actually never went away. And so that, that was the beginning of the end of that relationship and that deal and, and sort of probably one of my biggest learnings uh, in business to date, which has set my trajectory. So the part-time CFO, what if he had just said, no, Mark, I don't want to sell you my shares? Yeah, at that point, I'd said that I was willing to walk away and go do it on my own. Uh, and I, But that was more arrogance than reality. I, I don't think I would have. I think I probably would have found a way to either try and renegotiate the deal. Because for me, it was super exciting to be an entrepreneur and, and I didn't really have the means to do it any other way. And so I think ultimately he was a bigger man. I don't think my process was a great way. Um, and I think that he had a bigger view that, hey, look, OK, this isn't ideal, but the business should succeed because there's other people involved. And so he made that choice somewhat coerced by other partners. I think for me, it was more. I, I let pride get in the way of logical thinking at that moment in the part of my career as an entrepreneur. And I don't think that I fully appreciated all the aspects of being an entrepreneur with humble leadership and all those types of things. At that point, I thought for me, it was 
the way to really drive a business was to be the founder and, and say that you were sort of the person in charge and didn't realize all the other stuff that is super important to make real businesses work. So the original deal on paper was the value was going to be three to four times EBIT, uh, like the, the average of the last two years. Yeah. The mothership wanted to pay a premium because there was this relationship. What was the mothership wanting to pay in terms of multiple? Yeah, bought? it's a good point. And in hindsight, I don't really know, but it would for sure have been one or two times higher than that. And and to be fair, if you think about the value, the business was probably doing a million five at that point, we were maybe doing, you know, a couple hundred thousand to the bottom line. So, you know, the, as a multiple, it probably would end up a couple of terms, but you know, it was demonstrative, but probably a few extra hundred thousand dollars. Um, on a business that wasn't doing a lot. So it seemed like a greater amount than probably the multiple term. How'd you come up with the money? Well, this work gets interesting, right? Because they actually had to go lend the money back to the company to actually go do the buyout, right? The, the, mother the, the other founders. Had to lend yeah. Yeah, yeah. company so, money. Yeah, so it. I had a little bit of it that I would say was built through the sweat equity through my part of the earnings and that had to go back into it. And the deal was that that part of the earnings were, would have to go back against the payment. And then they basically fronted the other amount until either I came up with it or or lent it back or the company paid it back. And so in, in essence, what happened was the company ended up buying the shares back. And then the company then prorated the shares back into directed at me. So you ended up owning 20% of this? About 20% of the company, yeah. Okay. Because of that last little transaction that I said where the company actually acquired them and then had to send them back, I think I think in, call it full trajectory, I was about 18% of the business, yeah. Okay. And, and then where does it go from there? So you've got this sort of fractured tension with the founders. You've kind of shown your cards. You've, you've revealed yourself as this like ambitious, hard to corral guy. What, like what happens next? Yeah. Well, I, I think two big things happen. One, the employees felt it. And so interestingly, that was probably bad scenario. Number one is that the employees felt the fractured and the tension because it wasn't like we were totally separate families. They call it family running this business. Right. And it was obvious that I had driven one direction and other people had driven other directions. And so, first of all, there's a bit of fracturing inside the employee base, which I would say, you know, once again, great shared learning. Man, I was naive to not think that that would start to happen. And so that was part A. And then the part B was the, the partners that sort of picked two sides of the fence, right? And there was a divide. And I guess the last piece in that was what happened then was every time there was a challenge in the business, it, it just was put on steroids. Right? Because we'd already gone through this fracturing inside the business. And so sooner or later, what ended up happening was two of us wanted to go one direction in the company and the other two wanted to go another direction in the company. Um, and two of us then approached them to try and purchase the whole company because we thought that that would be an easier model. And, and it wasn't because if you think about the complication of how it was funded, there was a whole other company that was funded. That company was more, you know, more demonstrative to their net worth than this company. And, and so then what ended up happening was we sort of got into this standoff of everybody disagreed, but nobody could agree on a path forward. <laughs> um, and, and then you, like probably most businesses that you've talked to, sooner or later, you end up going to the agreement, right? And because the agreement will drive mechanisms to try and resolve roadblocks. This is the shareholders agreement. Yeah, absolutely. The shareholders agreement. And you know, my, it was interesting because the coaching I was given on the shareholders agreement from both them and my lawyer, honestly, was 
look, you negotiate this stuff hard and then hopefully it only goes in the left drawer of your desk and you never have to look at it again. You go build a great business. And so naively, I probably didn't fully understand that agreement or how the terms of that agreement worked. And in that was a pretty standard clause, a shotgun clause. Um, and the shotgun clause honestly seemed really, really big and scary at the time. Right. And, and I can describe it if you please like. do. Yeah. So ultimately, in most agreements, I think, or in a large part, there's a shotgun agreement, which sounds really scary. It basically says, if we disagree, I can offer to buy you out at a said price. And interestingly, the price doesn't even have to be driven by the mechanism that is in other parts of the clause of the agreement. It's just a price. But the way that most work is that there's a time frame against that offer and there's, there's a reciprocality against that offer. So I could offer my partners a million dollars for their shares and then I would have to wait and they would have totally their choice. They could either decide to sell me at a million dollars or they have to buy me at a million dollars. And so at the time, it seemed like a crazy, scary thing, right? Where you're going to put an offer out and try and figure out what price to go in at because you can't lowball the price. If you lowball the price, then you're going to end up selling at a lower price. And, and so, you know, as we were going through all this conflict, it really forced me as a, at that time, I called myself a bit of a wannabe entrepreneur, right? Because I hadn't put my own cash up. I was running the businesses, but it really forced me to understand what my priorities were. Which was, okay, was I willing to now come up with this money? And I was I passionate enough that I believe that with that and the new face forward of the business that we could actually go drive the business forward. And at the same time, it, you know, probably like most founders in a certain piece of their business, I believe that the business defined me at the time, right? You know, I, I wanted to be a founder. I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. Sorry, I didn't want to be an employee. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. This is my shot. And so... This one clause actually drives a lot of clarity in what you want in these really tensive situations, I would hmm. say. And so I went back and forth a bunch of times. My intention was actually to try and buy the business. And so I was working on an offer to go try and buy the business. You and this partner of yours. That yeah. yeah. So you and, and then right in the middle of it, I ended up getting a shotgun from one of the partners where they set the price. And then I had 10 days. And so this is where the naivety of everything that I've explained to you leading up to this point really comes to a crescendo because I was like, well, this is like, whoa, 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 whoa. what do you mean you're shotgunning me? Because I'm the guy driving the business. And, and they basically said, hey, look, um, we don't want to deal with it anymore. And so the business needs resolution and we're prepared to have you walk um, in order to get resolution. And we'd rather be the drivers of it than the acceptors of it. And as irrational as that sound at the time, it makes total logical sense now in hindsight that have been through cycles and businesses where as a majority partner, you kind of have to take control of that situation. And as the minority partner, you've kind of got to realize that if you want control of it, you really have to be proactive on it. And I would say proactive on all fronts of it, the pricing, the terms, the relationships, the communication. Um, because interestingly, and I don't know unilaterally, but I would say for the most part, I believe this is true based on most of the understandings I've had around them, is that shotgun agreements are one-to-one, -one, not one-to-many or company-to-one. And so this is where the nuance of it got really interesting for us, which is even if I'd said yes to buying the first partner, the second partner could have just increased the price on me. 
And then I would have had to go say yes to that piece, or I would have been stuck in this situation where I'd own part of it, but couldn't get all of it. I see. So one partner said, look, I'm going to buy your shares. And you had to decide that one partner. And then once you'd consummated that deal, you could have been shotgunned again by the second partner. Or I would have had to shotgun. Because, you know, at that point, let's assume I could have acquired 35% of the company, but I still had 65% out there in individuals. And so once again, entrepreneurial naivety around these agreements and shotguns and minority partners versus majority partners. I hadn't really understood that part of the equation, which was not only did I have to go negotiate those in pieces, the price could have changed every single time just based on that clause. And so I ended up declining it. And so declining it, meaning they offered to buy you out. And I said, okay, I would sell that I wouldn't buy back. And so when I mean decline, and I, the reason I use decline, and maybe not the right term, but I ended up leaving the company. Okay. I ended up going to them and saying, you know what? Uh, I didn't want to get into this multiple situation. Um, I actually, at one point, tried to find if there was a way to navigate around the shotgun. But once it was in process, it was in process. And so I ended up selling the business. and Selling your shares in it to them. Yeah. And it was for around like $216,000. Call it. It was about that. Um, and that, that represented I, what multiple of EBITDA? I'm trying to think, of, were they fair to you in the three to four times EBITDA? Yeah, they were pretty fair to me. Yeah, if you if you would assume the business did maybe 200,000, you know, then I own 20%. So the math is pretty fair from that standpoint, right? The math was pretty fair. And, and the reason being is that they had to be prepared on the other side that I would buy them at that and they didn't want to undervalue their shares. Mm-hmm. And so as a mechanism... It seems like a really brutal mechanism in a shareholders agreement. But when you get to the part where you've sort of either blown past or haven't respected enough other ways to manage dispute, I actually thought it was in hindsight, probably in the most rational way to not tank a whole company based on a dispute or irreconcilable differences from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. So that happens. And, you know, th- that part of the story is, is, is complicated and, and I can answer a bunch more questions, but it all leads to even greater people suing each other and how- Go further. What happens next? I'm yeah, telling yeah, you yeah, what yeah. happens next. So, so, so I end up leaving the business and still probably have a little bit of that chip on my shoulder and a high amount of naivety as you think. But at that point, I'm, you know, probably closer to 29 or 30. I've got some great relationships. What's going on for you in your personal life? Are you married? You kids? Like you have dependents? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to get a sense of like, do you need the money? Or are you still just like? No, no, no. That, that's more money than I ever had. You know, especially growing up, how I did with some of my parents and some of the you know the speed wobbles that they had. You, you know, having two hundred thousand dollars in my bank account was like I was a millionaire. Like I, I literally thought it was the greatest thing ever. Um, but I didn't have a job, and I didn't have my passion to doing the things that I was doing. And so fortunate enough. I built enough good relationships and I think I delivered a good enough experience for most of our partners that people started calling me, um, clients started calling me. And once again, a really interesting learning through this whole process was I had to then navigate what the difference between non-competition and non-solicitation was. And 
you know, once again, John, I had no think thought process of this when I was in the middle of a shotgun agreement, understanding what those other clauses mean. But suddenly I had to get a really good education in understanding the difference between a non-compete and non-competes are a little bit different today than they were to have been in 2004 or five, right? Enforceability in Ontario. But the non-solicitation is pretty black and white how that works. And so I do a simple- you don't know the difference, just describe the difference between the two. Yeah, yeah. So non-compete basically tries to say, you can't do anything that competes against us in a, in a, as, as a company in any entity. And where that used to be enforceable, um, was very favorable to the, to the employer. Because if I'd only done marketing, or if I was only a lawyer, or I was only one thing in my career, and then I left, and I'd done that for 20 years, how can I not compete in the one thing I'm good at over time? And so the good news is the legal system is, is pared back on that a bit in Ontario from a non-compete standpoint. But at the time, it, you know, it wasn't as black and white, but they basically said, hey, look, you've got to earn a living. Mark, we believe you can be in marketing. Um, you shouldn't directly compete against a project or anything that you'd understood in the last 12 months. So can't do that. No problem. That was part of your shareholders agreement. Yeah. Yep. In other words, if I had knowledge about something that would have had intellectual property from my past, I couldn't have forced that forward and go try and use that to my advantage. Totally understood that that made sense from a non-compete standpoint too. And then the non-solicitation I really had to understand. And in the essence of it, you know, the basics of it were basically I couldn't go to our clients and say, I have a new shingle, come work for me. And that seems pretty simple, but there's a big nuance in that of mm -hmm. how black and white you need to be to respect it, to, to really not put anything in the ethos that could say, well, I sneakily told my friend or ex-employee that I'm doing this and they should tell you to call me. And, and so I literally at the time had to have clients fax non-solicitation waivers to my legal firm for me to even return a phone call of theirs. And if you think about that at the time, like that just, it, and our clients were like, well, Sleemans was a client and Microsoft was a client and, and they, they were big clients. So to get them to do this, I thought was impossible and insanity. And I'm sure my partners, ex-partners did at the time, but crazier things happen. I suddenly getting these faxes. So these faxes to be clear are saying from Microsoft, we would like to work with Mark's new company. He did not solicit us. This is us yeah. doing this on our own. Yeah, relationship. Microsoft's probably a bad example. So let's sure. take Microsoft out as an example. And the reason was they sort of, in a very good way, Microsoft was like, look, anyone's business is not my problem. I run my business. I pick our partners. Yeah. Right. But some of our other partners, that's exactly what they did. They said, hey, look, we really like Mark's service. We really thought that he did a good job. I hear he's starting a new company. We want to do some consulting or we want to do some projects for us. And I would have to say to them, well, I can't return your phone call. Please call our lawyer. And, and the, basically the piece of paper would say, Mark didn't reach out to us. We're legally binding that we didn't do that. And that we approached him to do services for us, black and white. And then once that would get approved, I could actually follow up with people and start to go do work. I love this. <laughs> I, I know. Well, <laughs> I wish I could tell you it ends there. And, and so... You know, you, you've kind of got to put it into those two buckets, right? Of partners that were sort of said, hey, that was a good idea. And then bigger corporations who said, look, none of this is my problem. Go from there, right? And so I was very fortunate that I had enough of both of those buckets of partners say, hey, look, we will work with you. Um, some were all in and said, we really want to work with you. We believe in what you said. You know, whether they 
did that because they disagreed on how the past company went or they were super passionate about our services or we just had a better idea. They were really passionate and some individuals at those companies were super supportive of us. And so we started to build our business. And then at the same time, some of the other corporations said, well, look, this is not our fight to get into, but if you're willing to take the risk in working with us, in other words, we're not going to pay you for 90 days until projects are done and you have to prove that you can do this work, then we'll work with you. And so I was fortunate enough to get a bit of both of those businesses and clients. And, you know, we were building a good business. We were pretty small at the time. I think at the time I maybe had four or five employees. So, you know, on aggregate, you know, we were probably doing a few hundred thousand dollars in sales, maybe five or six hundred thousand dollars. And sales. Mark, is this the early iteration of traffic? What became traffic? This is traffic. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is, I originally set it up as a consultancy. And then that actually, you know, by the time I'd hired four or five employees, we actually changed the name to traffic. And so traffic at the time was running and, and we started to sort of build a small agency for lack of a better term at the time. So yes, it's a great point. So this was around 2004, 2005. And, and so we started to build the business and the business, you know, we were probably about six months into the business. And then I started to get rumblings that my ex world was not very happy about it and that they believed that the non-solicit, non-compete, there was some gray area. And then honestly, I think that there was a second piece of it that I was unable to see at the time, which was they built a great business and they had a bunch of employees and they had a bunch of customers. And suddenly they got into this dispute and I leave and go try and start a new business that even though I would say it was not competing, was close enough that they, they kind of had to make a stand, right? And, and at the time, you can imagine what I'm about to say next. I was really not happy. Yet. But in hindsight, as an entrepreneur, I'm like, you've, you've kind of got to protect the pieces of your business that are core. And, and in those service businesses, typically they're your people on both sides of the fence, the clients that adore you and love you and support you all the time, and the employees that come to work every day and love you and support you. And, and when you have somebody leave and be as disruptive to that, as I didn't think I was, but in hindsight, I must have been. You, you kind of got to draw a line in the sand. And so, you know, to answer your earlier question, I, I just started dating um, Beth, who I'm married to now. And we were sort of cohabitating. We were, she was at my house a lot. And, and by that point, I remembered, or sorry, I'd found out that they were going to sue. And, and I'd found out about it because they were obviously had to go to some other partners and clients and and sort of try and build the position. And, and so as I found that out, I was like, oh, that's going to be really bad. Like, I didn't know what, I didn't understand that. I, that was terrifying to me. You know, you get angry. You're like, I did nothing wrong. I followed all these agreements. And so, you know, at the time our lawyer said, well, look, um, there's evidence that they'd obviously gone to the marketplace and said some things. And so unfortunately you're going to have to sue them back. And so. So wait, they, you're going to sue them back for what? defamation and, and a bunch of a, a, a bunch of you know basically messaging in the marketplace that was preventing me from being able to be successful or even run my business so, and, so there's there you get wind that they're going to sue you correct because you haven't honored the 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 spirit of the non-solicitation non-compete correct you get wind of that and the lawyer's like well you better you know they've been bad-mouthing you in the marketplace so you better reciprocate and, and sue them for defamation yeah and and at the time, it, 
I, I get it. And I get it even now as a, hey, this is not going to go well. There's got to be a, a strategy that at least we understand that there's some balance in this. And honestly, I hated every minute of it. I hated every minute of all pieces of it, right? I didn't 100%. want to sue. For me, it seemed like the wrong way to solve a problem. Sure. And on the flip side, I was terrified to be sued, right? Um, what and then once I realized I got sued, and here's the personal relationship part. I, I remember this vividly. We lived at College in Clinton at the time. There was a men's store, clothing store called Pasqualino. And I lived right above it. There was this window, bay window, and Beth was in the bay window. And I remember she came home and I said to her, hey, so I'm going to get sued. And she's like, what? How can you get sued? And I'm like, mm, I'm going to get sued. And, and I don't think it's going to be like for... $10 because there's businesses and clients involved. At that time, I had no idea what was going to happen. And, and I remember she looking at me like, well, do you have money to be sued? And I'm like, well, no, all I have is the money they gave me. And I spent most of it trying to hire some employees and build a business. So I don't really know how this is all going to go down. But, you know, the narrative in a funny story was now it was a bit of a game of who is going to get served papers first. And, and so you start suing everyone. And so what ended up happening was I basically, I, I literally had a high note in my house for about three days. And Beth at the time would leave to go to work and there'd be someone running her down the street saying, hey, do you know Mark Ferrier? And she'd say, I have no idea who this person was. Um, and like, she that game, really loved you, Mark, just to be clear. She must have really, really liked you. <laughs> I think she has a lot of tolerance for me now. But yes, I think at the, in those days, we, we really built some loving, interesting relationships. Um, and to the point where at the time, I, there, there was a restaurant on the Queen Street in Toronto called Jahoski that a really good friend of mine was opening. And it was the grand opening night. And I, I had a little bit of investment in that. And so I had to leave the house. And so I, I literally remember crawling over the back fence of our house at the time, going down the back alley and knocking on a restaurant door on College Street and having to walk through the restaurant while Beth picked me up on the street so I could avoid getting served by papers. Why, sorry, this is a hilarious story, but why did you not want to get served? What well, was the- apparently at the time, and I'm not a legal expert, I'm sure you have a lawyer on the phone, but it was an order of the cases being registered um, in the Ontario legal system. Okay. And so our lawyer basically said, we think the strategy should be to try and get ours registered before theirs gets registered. And I guess it can't be registered until you're physically served with paper. Got it. Okay. Well, once again, I feel like I'm in a movie right now. You, you, like, like I don't know any of this and, and I'm trying to figure it out. And, and once again, I was super angry and frustrated and hurt. And, and looking back on it, I totally understand rationally why these guys did what they needed to do. Right. And so I finally got served the papers and it was for $2 million. So I got sued for $2 million. Wait, you got 200 grand when you left. How did they come up with 2 million bucks as the- uh, Well, it was $2 million and scarier part of it was, like there were client names in the lawsuit around, hey, you did this for this client, you did this for that client. And, you know, probably of- five or six entrepreneurial lessons that I'm sure all the successful entrepreneurs on your, on your you know, podcast and in your book would tell you, right? There's these, there's these moments when in hindsight or in the moment you realize, oh shit, this is like, this is one of those moments they talk about being an entrepreneur, right? I suddenly realized, forget the money thing. Cause to your point, I didn't, I, I couldn't make the math work anyway. Like you can't, you couldn't sue me for that, but because I could have never paid it. But what I realized it was, my whole reputation in this marketplace 
was in these documents, right? Like I had to go to my clients and say, I didn't do it. Your name's in it. I'm sorry. I got to get your name out of a lawsuit. You know, the people at those businesses that stood up for me, now their boss and legal team and CFO are coming to them saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I know you like these people, but now we're in the middle of all this mess. And, you know, probably the lowest, one of the lowest moments of my entire career was realizing that part of the equation, not even the money, realizing my entire reputation is built in this document. And if I don't figure out a way to solve that problem, the money is going to be totally irrelevant. I got to find a new career and build a new brand. And, you know, so the lawsuit starts and, you know, clients are involved and then obviously clients do what all clients should do. They're like, well, I don't care what your guys' dispute is, get my name out of it. So some of them I was able to negotiate to get their name out of and some forced themselves out of. Mark, before you go further, though, I want to yeah. know, like, who ended up serving who? Did you finally get caught in the back alley of the restaurant? Uh, or I, I think what ended up happening was it, it almost got to the same day everyone got the papers. At a certain point, we were like, we got to get on with this. I can't be crawling around my floor anymore. Um, <laughs> and, and the sequencing was super tight. Like, I can't remember the exact sequencing, but it was finally like I got a phone call that said, look, let's just get move on. Yeah. Um, and, and so we get sued. I start to understand the papers. It's for $2 million. Client's names are involved. I suddenly realized this is bigger than the money. And, you know, we start to go down this process. And a few things happen in the process. One is we can, we're still running our business. I now got to go talk to employees and say, hey, this thing from the past is now here. Um, I had a partner at the time who wanted to be a partner and said, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. We need to find a different deal. I don't want my name to be tied up in this. So my new future companies partnership and Cheryl's agreements all got blown up. You know, employees were coming to me basically saying, are you really a good person, bad person? Like you can imagine, right? Oh, and, man. Yeah. And, and, and part of that is because I made the choice that said I wasn't going to hide from it. I wasn't going to publicize it, but I wasn't going to hide from it because I just thought hiding from it, if you go back to like the reputation and my brand and, and all that, if I hid from it, it just, I just thought it would be the exact opposite thing to do in life. And so I didn't. And so it dragged. Right. And it went back and forth and there were multiple pieces. And then, you know, at one point there was an offer to settle and the offer to settle was for something way more reasonable, you know, maybe a hundred thousand dollars. And in the settlement though, it was basically an acknowledgement that I'd done all the things that I shouldn't have done. I went and took clients that I premeditated this, that I put reputational things in the marketplace in order to get ahead faster. And you know, none of those things were true. And at the time, and, and it's, it's perspective in history, right? At the time, I, was, I couldn't understand why they did all of those things. But at the end of the day, what they were trying to do was protect the people, right? Their people on their internal base and their client side. And whether I agree with how they did it, I fundamentally now can understand the rationality of being in a service business and really understanding what the ethos of your business is which is your people, right? And your people down to trust and belief in the leadership and believe in the people. And so I understand in hindsight why they did it, but there was no way of signing, right? Because exactly what I just said to you is all I had going forward in the marketplace in a service business. I didn't have a product. I didn't have, I had a reputation, which really at the end of the day comes out of your integrity and your word. And so this lawsuit carried on and carried on and carried on and carried on. 
And at a certain point, they were trying to grow their business. This is probably an inconvenience and a pain in the ass to them. Somehow, some lot rational lawyer, lawyer at a certain point got us down to, we, we were talking like $50,000, right? $50,000 in a minor acknowledgement around, you know, how the business was built. And at that point, I remember sitting down with Beth and she's like, this is great. This is like $50,000 or $25,000. The company's doing well. We are done. Like, let's plan a celebratory dinner on Friday and let's just move on. And I remember saying no. And, 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 and it was one of those just moments in your relationship where you're like, this could be a double no. Like, she could just keep walking out the door. And, and she sort of looked at me and she was like, like pardon? Like, this, we're good. Like, this is going to go away. And I said, yeah, but... It's not because I'm, I'm going to know that, you know, in a business that's all people, I, I didn't do this. And, you know, I've got to stand behind it. And, and so through a crazy turn of events, what ended up actually happening was they were trying to do some other stuff on their business and transacted. And I guess their lawyers and whatever said, look, let's just get to a rational place. And then there was this one day, I'll never forget it. I got a call, I'll call it like 10 a.m., and the offer was, let's just, we're going to make up numbers, right? It was $25,000 and, you know, basically no acknowledgement, but we've got to sign confidentiality agreements that we never talk about it. And so I said, no problem with the confidentiality agreements, but I can't sign $25,000. And then literally through the day, the price came down to like $5,000 at four o'clock. And you can imagine my wife at this day, right? Like I thought she would be, like, please move on, please be crazy. And then the coolest thing happened, my wife said, no, I'm fully behind you. I totally understand. Like, I, you're you, 100%. And so at the end of the day, like five minutes before five o'clock, it came across saying, okay, we'll mutually walk away. People will pay their own legal fees and we'll just sign a confidentiality agreement to the details around it, right? And so obviously I'm not giving you all the details around That's it right, right now. Yeah. Um, but... You know, it was a great learning is that I, I learned that you got to stand behind what you believe in. And on the same side, I believe that I probably was very immature and irrational in understanding how my actions impacted another service organization that I that I told everyone I believed in and my heart was behind it. And instead of understanding a, a better situation to make it work for all people, like and, and I, I use people, right, because it's the client people that invest and believe in you and your people that invest and believe in you. Um, and so I think in hindsight, you know, that process really taught me the balance of those two things. And, and at the time it didn't, obviously. Um, but I can have that conversation now and realize that I, I don't think I would have necessarily done anything functionally different than my ex-partners did. I probably would have handled some of the minor behaviors differently. Um, but functionally, I think you got to stand for what you believe in, which is your people and, and your service. And, and so through a crazy string of events from a sweat equity to a shotgun agreement to a lawsuit. Um, it was really my first lesson in, in entrepreneurship. I love that story. What an incredible uh, turn of events and the fact that you stuck to your guns. And, and, um, and I think, you know, we, we all kind of look back on stuff what we were like when we were twenties and think, Oh, geez, sometimes it's a bit cringe where they, at least for me, I think about some of the things I did, you know, with all the ambition and, and then you realize with a little bit of time that, that uh, maybe 
well, I won't put words in your mouth, but I, I know, I know um, I'm grateful for you sharing the story for sure. Yeah. I, I think, especially in the service driven businesses, I, I think that that's the thing that I learned the most is the, the ethos of these service businesses are, are super connected to the founder, the people, the clients, the passion. And I think my learnings in, in all of these are the structure of that agreement that you put together for partnerships and, and whether they're 50, 50 partnerships, which sometimes are even more challenging, as you know, and, and it's probably experienced on the podcast to minor partnerships. I think if you go into it with the understanding and learnings that I didn't have at the time, which is the service businesses are really about the people on both sides of the fence. And in order to keep that business existing, I think my learning is if you write share purchase agreements or shareholders agreements with that intent, I actually think you'll be in a better place for the most part and have mechanisms to protect the people on both sides of the fence, which is really the business and the brand you're in, in the service side, because you just don't have the assets to start dividing up. And, yeah. you're not, you know, in service businesses, it's almost like a divorce more than it is a business sale at times. Um, and I think that that is where this whole experience has taught me a little bit better. And so that would be the thing that I probably naively so didn't understand until way later in life was how to make sure that when you build those agreements, whether it's minor partnerships or whatever, that you really understand how in a service business coming out the other end with a service business, whoever owns that service business is really the most important part. And there you have it for part one of this two-part interview with Mark Ferrier. Next week, we're going to hear how Mark picked up the pieces and how he started Traffic, a company that he went on to sell to Onyx in an eight-figure exit deal. If you enjoyed today's episode, then as always, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support the podcast, you can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, where there you have a chance to leave a rating and review. Ratings and reviews truly help our show grow and get in front of more business owners just like you. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, be sure to visit the episode page, which you'll be able to find over at built to sell. If you know of someone who'd be a great fit to be a guest right here on the show, you can actually nominate them. Head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, and there you'll have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week.